Hello, friends, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of The Membership, a podcast about the work and life of Wendell Berry, the farmer poet, novelist, essayist, activist, and thinker. My name is John Pattison, and I'm joined tonight by my fellow member, Tim Wassum. Hey, John. It's good to hear hey, your Tim. voice. Yeah, you too. It's been a while since we recorded. Yeah, we, we uh, in the midst of all the COVID-19 madness, we definitely in our scenarios, uh, it hasn't become easier to get a podcast <laughs> released. It's gotten harder. Uh, I know some people have been given getting a little more freedom to, to work on projects like this, but I know for us with working from home slash teaching four different grades of elementary school and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just being with our families, it's, it, it's, it's become difficult, but I'm glad to be back on track. And like I said, it's just good to hear your voice because we've basically communicated through text for a month and a half now. So it's good to see you. Yep. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like in some ways my life is so much simpler. And at the same time, it somehow seems busier. And I think it's just because people like you haven't been babysitting our kids for eight or nine hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. It's, I have a theory on that. It's just it feels like... It feels like we're in a simpler time, but a busier time because we can't compartmentalize our brain at all. It's always yep. you're always doing everything all at once. You're you're parenting, working, managing a household all at the same time, rather than like I can't do the dishes now. I'm at work, <laughs> like I'm yep. somewhere else. I'm in a different building. Uh, whereas now it's it's everything all at once, and so that gets exhausting. We I know in our household we get to about Thursday, and both of us kind of uh, Jane and I just kind of hit the couch at the end of the day, kind of just worn out because keeping up with homeschooling and everything but yeah totally totally relate to that i i think i said somewhere on twitter or something that the hardest adjustment for me personally has been not the the loss of of freedom of movement but the freedom of focus because i feel like i have five or six conversations happening at any given time mm. um, mm -hmm. and uh, so that's been and my wife feels the same way and so that's been an adjustment for sure. But this is one conversation I've been looking forward to having. Um, we actually did try to record back in uh, in late February, I think, and then we had some really great guests lined up. But we just we really had trouble with getting everyone together. So that was a, a, a disappointment. I'll talk a little bit about uh, about those guests here in a minute. But they're um, doing a really cool project, and we'd like to have them again, um, have them on uh, for real sometime soon. But uh, just couldn't make it happen for Nathan Coulter. What we do at a lot of our at the start of a lot of our podcast episodes is we start with what we call farm fresh points, and uh, we have a few today. It's because we're kind of going through our backlog, and um, I wanted to start with one. Um, uh, we heard from a listener through Instagram who asked about a song that she had heard called Burley Coulter at the Bank, and it was by a uh, folk singer named John McCutcheon. And um, she asked if we knew what storyline this song was from. And basically, from what I can gather from the lyrics, um, it's the song is sort of told from the perspective of a local Port Williamite who goes off to college and then comes back home to work at a local bank. But then the bank, the local bank is sold to a mega bank and one day, in walks Burley Coulter. Um, he's a, a man of a different era in this song, and he needs money to live out the rest of his life, and we're not really told exactly what's happening, but it seems like he's 
mortgaging his property, um, his mortgaging his farm or something else just to, to pay for the last few years of his life. It's terribly sad, especially because I encountered it right after reading Nathan Coulter, uh, where Burley Coulter plays a big part. Um, and as far as I can tell, I don't think it takes place in any sort of canon Port Williams storyline. It's almost like an alternative Port William universe. Uh, but it's very moving, a very sad song. Um, so, I, And I recommend going out to, to listen to it. It's called Burley Coulter at the Bank by John McCutcheon. Tim, did you have a chance to listen to that song? Yeah, I listened to it. Chatted about it. Listened to it several times, and it's. I, I agree that it was like, you hear it, and it feels like of a different. It, it's almost like a, a different fly on the wall in Port William. You know, somebody who doesn't obviously doesn't have the voice of Wendell Berry, and you don't see that very often, where you, you hear that outside voice describing a character. And it wasn't incredibly. It was incredibly sad, but um, and it, it, you're. It gives you the really gratifying brain exercise of filling in the blanks of like how does Burley get from the last place I saw him to here, and that's mm-hmm. that's really interesting. So I'm I'm definitely glad it's out there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. My second farm fresh point is actually about the the guests that we wanted to have on last time. They are doing a project on Instagram called the Membership Read Along, and their names are Kiri and Alicia, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing Kiri's name correctly. But they're doing this cool project where they are reading the Port William fiction, at, I believe one book a month, um, all throughout the, the year of 2020. And uh, their first book, because it com- takes place, well, actually, I think because it was the first book Barry published, was Nathan Coulter. And so we were hoping to have them on to talk about that, but it didn't didn't really work out but that said you should totally follow the project that they're doing on instagram just go to the hashtag go to hashtag the membership read along and you can follow along with what they're doing it's it's pretty cool and they're just awesome readers it's i follow both of them now and i just love seeing everything that they're reading um not just wendell berry so those are the two that i have for now tim uh what about you do you have any farm fresh points yeah, I got I've got several. They've been kind of building up over time. Uh, one that I have been wanting to talk about for I guess I found out about this right when we were going to first record this, so it's been a, a couple months. But there's a new um, anthology of photographs and short essays about uh, from some of Appalachia's best writers. That's called "Step Into the Circle: Writers in Modern Appalachia." That uh, I found out about through. I want to I want to say it was through Wiley Cash uh, had posted something, and Wiley Cash is a writer I really love who wrote. Uh, a land more kind than home, and he is included in this collection. Also, uh, Wendell Berry is in the collection. Ron Rash, who we've talked about before, Silas House, uh, Adriana Trigiani uh, is in there, and then it's edited by Amy Green, who's the uh, author of a really fantastic novel called Bloodroot that mm. um, I read several years back. And so I was just excited to see all those names in the same place. Um, uh, it's available most places and i actually haven't gotten my copy yet but i'm really looking forward to it part photo book part essay collection and it's all just kind of praise for the mountains and valleys of the region so thought i'd is it all nonfiction, or is there some fiction some poetry looks like it's all uh all nonfiction, uh short essays and photographs is okay what, oh yeah that's, that's right okay yeah. mm-hmm. that sounds yeah. great yeah uh next thing uh was there a a few of Wendell Berry's books were re-released on audiobook. Actually, I shouldn't say re-released. One of them was released, which was an older book, which is The Unsettling of America. Uh, the other is The uh, World-Ending Fire. 
which is his newer uh, selected essays collection, were released on audiobook, and they're being read by Mr. Nick Offerman of Parks and Recreation fame. Uh, and awesome. it is pretty cool because we know we've talked about before that he's a, a Wendelberry super fan. He's very heavily influenced by Mr. Barry. And so he, I'm sure he was just giddy to get on those projects. And so I, I purchased the world ending fire collection and I've been listening to that and really enjoying it. I, I think the last essay I listened to is think little and, uh, he definitely, I don't, cause you know, Ron Swanson and Nick Offerman are not the same person, and sometimes it's hard to reckon with that reality. <laughs> but but I don't know if you've listened to the audiobooks, but when he reads it, it sounds like Ron Swanson. It doesn't sound mm. as much like Nick. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe he'd be mad if he heard that. But I am. But I appreciate it. Like it's just he's just got he he reads it with that same kind of confidence that you can you can imagine Ron Ron projecting. But it's really well done. And the World Ending Fire is a great selected a selection of essays so i'm really glad that came out it was a that was a fun treat to come across and i had a audible credit burning a hole in my virtual pocket so i picked it up have you listened to that's so of these? cool I, no i haven't and and actually i didn't even know that they were available until just like a week ago when yeah. when a friend sent me uh, a link i've wanted there to be nonfiction audiobooks for a long time mm-hmm and how cool that it's Nick Offerman reading these. Yeah. I, I just think that's great. I'm actually, we're, we are re-watching Parks and Rec with my 12-year-old right now. And it is so fun uh, to introduce her to these characters that we love. That's uh, cool. Especially, yeah. especially Ron Swanson. Yeah, yeah. For me, at least. So yeah. many good characters, gosh. Uh, but... Yeah, he does. He does an incredible job. He's a talented guy, and he and you can tell. You know, you can tell when a when somebody reading an audiobook uh, cares <laughs> about what they're reading. Yeah, you can you can yep. feel that, and so that's it's definitely prevalent. Like you, you can definitely tell that Offerman cares about what he's reading. Uh, the next thing I want to bring up was a podcast called Sugar Calling, which is from the New York uh, New York Times or New Yorker. Ugh, I should know that. New, it's New York Times, so it's through the New York Times, and it's uh, Cheryl Strayed who wrote the who kind of came to fame writing the book wild and the podcast is just her calling on some of her like old friends and having conversations about current events and about literature and all this stuff. And, and sugar is her nickname, which explains the title. It's sugar calling. It says she's the one calling, uh, but in the first episode of the podcast, which is called everything is always keep changing, which is an amazing title of an episode. (laughs) Uh, she calls George Saunders, who's another writer that I really admire, and I, I reread frequently. And when she talked to George Saunders, and they were talking about quarantine and COVID nineteen and all of this that they're they're dealing with, uh, George Saunders just delighted me by bringing up Wendell Berry. Uh, he he kind of brings it up. He says, "By the way, have you do you read much Wendell Berry?" And she says, "Oh yes." And he's like, "Well, I've been reading a lot of him recently." Uh, Saunders says that. I think something that we could get into, I think we'll get into in our next episode, we're talking about some of these more recent essays that he is the type of writer that during a time like this, you kind of are drawn to, right, or drawn drawn back to. And I was going to read the poem. He shares a poem in the uh, podcast. He shares the poem, The Wild Rose, which is a a love poem Wendell Berry wrote to uh, Tanya Berry. So I want to, I want to read this. He said, this is a poem Mm -hmm. that's been on his mind. I'm not going to dig into it. And you can listen to him give his much more eloquent explanation, but I just want to read the poem that he, he said has been on his mind during these times that we're in. This is the wild rose. Sometimes hidden from me in daily custom and in trust so that I live by you unaware as by the beating of my heart. 
Suddenly you flare in my sight, a wild rose looming at the edge of thicket, grace and light where yesterday was only shade. And once again, I am blessed, choosing again what I chose before. Um, so I really encourage you to hear him talk about that poem and bring up Wendell Berry, but I mean, he, I think you, you, can, you can tell the, the draw to that poem during these times is that this time help is kind of forcing us all to f- make sure we're focused on the right things and focused on the right people and giving attention to the people who really deserve it in our life and not, it's, it's, it's encouraging us to not let ourselves be pulled around and jerked around by the world, so really loved really loved hearing that that's beautiful uh now the last one i was going to bring up which we've been kind of working on for a while is my sister who's a graphic designer has helped us design a new logo for the membership which we're going to be uh putting out soon and i think the idea for this originated with you john you want to tell them like what your original kind of concept was for yeah, it, early on as we were, I think it, before we launched the podcast, we were talking about different ideas for our logo, and um, I'm really good at coming up with ideas, but not necessarily knowing how to execute on them. <laughs> and so without knowing anything about graphic design or about uh, barn quilts, I said, well, maybe our logo should be uh, similar to a barn quilt. And I think, yeah, I think we all like the idea, but none of us really knew <laughs> how to make that happen. Um, and your sister is just a, an incredibly talented graphic designer, and she at least did, maybe still teaches other people graphic design, but she's done this really, really beautiful barn quilt style logo for us, which is just what we wanted. Um, and uh, so that's very, very cool. Yeah, my sister is a, a graphic design professor at George Fox University, uh, Ashley Lippard, and she's a very, very talented woman, and she is, she has a, sort of recent exposure to Wendell Berry, especially through some friends there at George Fox who were very into Wendell Berry. And, and when I told her the idea and told her your concept with the, the, the idea with the barn quilt, she really dove in and looked into all the traditional styles of barn quilt. And then, which I love, she looked into those and then just kind of like cut loose and, <laughs> and came up with her own, which I think is a really cool, uh, yeah, just a, a really cool way of designing something new is being, steeped in the the history and then busting out with a new idea so we'll be we'll be putting that out soon with our with our upcoming episodes you'll get to see our new logo which we're very very proud of so thank you ashley thank you sister yeah no kidding thank you (laughs) and she made a bunch of she made a bunch of different ones for us to choose from Mm -hmm. uh and it was hard for us to pick just one yeah she yeah she generated like 15 or 20 or something like very quickly with these really cool color schemes and i think all of us kind of quickly landed on the same three and then it took us a yep. little while to 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 decide which one would be the one but I'm, i think we're all we're all happy with where it turned out so you know one of the other thing i wanted to bring up sort of here in farm fresh points and you kind of did uh some of this already i was curious if there were uh Wendelberry works whether it be a an essay, a story, a passage, a poem that you've been coming back to during quarantine. I know that there have been a couple for me. One was sent to me uh, pretty early on, and it's called Stay Home, and it's a poem. Um, and I want to read it here, too. Again, like you, I won't dive into, uh, you know, delve too deep into it. it it's it's going to be pretty obvious what, <laughs> what, the, what the connection is, but it's called Stay Home. I will wait here in the fields to see how well the rain brings on the grass. In the labor of the fields, longer than a man's life, I am at home 
Don't come with me. You stay home too. I will be standing in the woods where the old trees move only with the wind and then with gravity. In the stillness of the trees, I am at home. Don't come with me. You stay home too. Hmm. That's really Another beautiful. is actually, is a, a quote from one of his essays that I, I posted on, on Instagram not long ago because part of my routine that I didn't set out to create during during this time, but it's just developed over time, is almost every single day I go on the same three-and-a-half-mile walk through the country near our house. We live right on the edge of town, um, and, we, and we call it the loop. But it's been incredible to me that I've walked this the same, the same loop dozens and dozens of times now, and it's never been the same twice it's always mm-hmm. interesting uh, it's all it feels always feels fresh and i have thought to this thought back to this line by barry where he said and the world cannot be discovered by a journey of miles no matter how long but only by a spiritual journey a journey of one inch very arduous and humbling and joyful by which we arrive at the ground at our own feet and learn to be at home and I think what's partly why that came to mind is because this this loop, this walk, has always been available to us. We've driven it a couple times before, but we've never actually gone out and sort of taken that slow way and really um, gotten to know it better and gotten to know the animals along the way and some of the neighbors. Um, we've never experienced it at this pace, and uh, it was always right there waiting for us. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that that poem that brings to mind. I think the line we've talked about before from uh, Walt Whitman, the from Song of Myself, where he asks the question, "Have you reckoned an acre, uh, reckoned an acre much? Have you have you thought?" Mm-hmm. Any, there's a section of Song of Myself where he talks about, "Have you really thought about the infinity that's right within an acre?" I mean, that's this is yeah. a good time to to learn to to think about that acre or that loop. You know, um, that's great. Um, I have I have a poem I want to read, and this is a poem that I had talked about very early on in the in the podcast because I had talked about how sometimes I like to get out my typewriter and type a poem out that I that mm-hmm. I find meaningful just to kind of go through that process of of putting the words onto the page in a slightly uncomfortable way you know and one and so I I was uh, in our basement kind of going through some doing some projects working on some rooms and and came across that original one that I had typed out of this poem which is called Work Song Part 2 A Vision If we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand like slow-growing trees on a ruined place, renewing, enriching it, then a long time after we are dead, the lives our lives prepare will live there, their houses strongly placed upon the valley sides. The river will run clear, as we will never know it. On On the steps where greed and ignorance cut down the old forest, an old forest will stand, its rich leaf fall drifting, on its roots. The veins of forgotten springs will have opened. Families will be singing in the fields. Memory, native to this valley, will spread over it like a grove, and memory will grow into legend, legend into song, song into sacrament. The abundance of this place, the songs of its people and its birds, will be health and wisdom and indwelling light. This is no paradisal dream. Its hardship is its reality. That that is has come back into my mind over the last several weeks. 
And, uh, you know, we can't not mention, and if you're spending any time on Twitter, this poem has been popping up, but this, the poem, The Piece of Wild Things, which we've mentioned before, of course. So, um, that's, we've, we've talked about that as being one of the most anthologized poems by Barry, and it's one that probably our listeners are familiar with, so we don't have to read that one. <laughs> um, but we, we don't have to. I mean, it's, it's kind of always good to read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but encourage you to to go back and read that once a day during during this time yeah absolutely great that's great advice i've seen it a ton on twitter and instagram too you're Mm -hmm. right it's all over the place yeah well should we transition to talking about uh this episode's book yeah let's do it i've been so the the irony of getting like into a dry period of recording when we're talking about our first novel which is what i've been looking forward to since we started this (laughs) this this podcast i'm really looking forward to talking about this yeah you've been waiting a long time you've been (laughs) we we've all been excited but you you've you've mentioned it a few times and so here we are yeah um so what's funny is as we were getting ready to uh to record this earlier with um with one of the two guests uh somebody one of you brought up the counterpoint uh counterpoint presses that's the the publisher their summary of this book oh yeah yeah it's it's pretty bad (laughs) yeah yeah i forgot about that yeah yeah in as much as it's not at all accurate um (laughs) so before we give our summary uh, here's how Counterpoint Press, bless their heart, they do such good work. Here's how they summarize it. When young Nathan loses his grandfather, Barry guides readers through the process of Nathan's grief, endearing the reader to the simple humanity through which Nathan views the world. Echoing Barry's own strongly held beliefs, Nathan tells us that his grandfather's life couldn't be divided from the days he'd spent at work in his fields. Now, it's important to know that the grandfather does die. <laughs> But he dies off the page and off the very last page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, so if you've, if you've held off from reading the book because of that summary, I don't know why you would. Or if you were sort of put off by uh, – <laughs> you bought the book because of that, that description sounded so good and then you read it and realized that's nothing. That's very, yeah. really very little about what the, what the book is about. It's sort of like an op- is... opaque in- inverse summary of the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of the book. <laughs> um, all right, so here is here is my very very short summary. Um, so first of all, I guess we should mention that this was Wendelberry's first novel, first book published. I think it was published in 1960 when when he was just 27, um, and it spans um, just a few years in the uh, in the the title character's life, Nathan Coulter. It ends the book ends when he's about 13 or 14, um, and his book ended very literally book ended by two deaths. His mother dies at the beginning of the book. His grandfather dies toward the end of the at the very end of the book, um, and after his mother dies, Nathan and his brother Tom go to live uh, on the the next property over uh, at their grandparents' house, and uh, we. It's we learn a lot about the Col- the Coulter family. Um, Nathan's father and grandfather are very hard men. They're they're generally good, but they're hard um, and just difficult to live with. And so the book really sort of takes place over a, a series of either vignettes or set pieces. I'm not sure what the the technical literary term is, Tim. You can help me out, but. Mm. 
Uh, we see that he, you know, he gets into some trouble with his brother. He has adventures with his uncle Burley, um, and eventually he kind of drifts apart from his brother Tom uh, when Tom gets a girlfriend, and then, then Tom leaves the farm after a fight with his father, where uh, his father really wounds his pride. It's a very short book. It's a very, uh, you know, coming of age story, um, but in it we're introduced to Port William, and to a lot of the... and Or I should say to several of the characters that we'll see again and again throughout the Port William membership books. Um, is there is there anything you would add in, in terms of a short summary, Tim? You're usually much better at this part than I am. I think that was great, and I think how you described the book was, was accurate as far as being a sort of a series of vignettes, but I, I would probably take it a little further and say that it's almost like a novel that's f- uh, formatted as a memoir. Is how mm. how I see it. Like every, the the story is on a. There is a timeline. There's a progression to it. But uh, we see kind of a snapshot in time, and then it jumps ahead. And those two moments in time aren't necessarily like held together by plot. The novel doesn't. This this novel doesn't really have a through like a plot that drives through it from from start to finish, um, necessarily. So, I, but I think you're you're right on. The only the other little thing I would I would point out is just the the kind of prevalence of Burley Coulter as a as yes. a father mm-hmm. figure in the in the book. For Nathan and Tom, so uh, Burley, this isn't ye- well. I shouldn't say that. I was gonna say this isn't yet the Burley we know. That's just kind of like hilarious. There's definitely some of that in this book. <laughs> in this book, where he is, he's kind of the entertaining character. But we get to see kind of a Burley culture or origin story here. Uh, why he is the way he is, which I think mm-hmm. was really fascinating. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we've talked before about how all three of us really love the character of Burley Coulter. And this is, as you said, his origin story. Um, and it's funny, but it's sad too. Sad and, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. And difficult. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I, but I, I think that you, I think that you summarized that well, um, or at least, it, you know, improved on my summary of it. I'm curious if you had read this book before, I'd read it once before. Okay. Um, when I was in college. So it had been okay. probably a decade since I had read it from, you know, I read it in college and then I read it three months ago or whatever. And then I read most of it again, kind of between now and then. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So I had, had you read it before? I had, and that, there yeah. are a couple scenes in here that are among my most memorable scenes from the Port William, uh, mm-hmm fiction so my second question is did you enjoy it oh yeah yeah definitely (laughs) yeah i i I did enjoy it i i'm a i'm not sure if i've talked about this before with you but i i'm a avid fan of the novella format Mm -hmm. i love books that land in about the 80 to 120 page kind of range um i love books that give you that like very cinematic feel to them and a lot of his books are longer, but um, some of his, you know, he's got a few others that are kind of in this vein with Memory of Old Jack and Remembering, some of these shorter novels. Uh, but I loved it just for that. I love the scope of it. Um, and I really enjoyed focusing so much on one family. Like when I, when I look mm-hmm. back at the rest of the novels and seeing like, uh, I, I really like how he, he really gets our feet feet wet with with the cultures here and 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 it i I wish i had read it first 
I mean, of course, this is like a ridiculous thing to say, but uh, having read this novel first, it would have made reading the other ones more interesting because you see the the roots of the culture family throughout the other books. Mm-hmm. But I think this is probably like, I probably read this one fourth or fifth in line or something when I was originally reading his books. Yeah, but so did it's you, interesting you... Go ahead. I would say, did you enjoy it? And I was going to ask you the same question. Well, it's interesting you you talked about the order in which you read it because I asked myself upon rereading it if this had been my first Port William book, would I have wanted to read others? Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't think that I would have. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. If I if I also had no experience with the poetry and the essays, I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have gone back because I was really like, there were parts of this, many parts of this book that I found impressive and even moving, but I didn't, I can't say that I actually enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really, I I like that insight. That's that I probably would agree with you now that I, I think about it through that lens as far as if this was the first one I read. Um, I think my one, my main critique for it is that it, it, and I wonder if you'd agree with this in your kind of not dislike, but just like you're not like you're not like you're not being very enthusiastic about it. Um, it feels a little bit like an unfinished book. Do you get that sense? Yeah. And did you know it was revised in 1985? I so I've always seen that like in the like whatever the copyright notes or whatever, but I never really mm-hmm. understood uh, what that meant. So. Can you say a little something about that? Yeah, I did some research. Um, I found this in the book Telling the Stories Right by Jack Baker and Jeffrey Bilbro. Um, there's an essay in there um, where they talk about this. I guess it Barry, in 1985, Barry cut more than 20 pages from the original. Um, in the original, Dave Coulter, so that's the grandfather actually survives the stroke initially so the the current book that, that we're talking about he is i mean we it's strongly implied that he's either dead or like will will very very soon be dead mm-hmm. in the initial book he hangs on for about a week after having this stroke um and then like nathan coulter has an affair with gander's wife i guess um and so what the author of this essay says is that the, the revision actually underscores the importance of a good death to Barry. And so there are like these, the four categories, I think the four characteristics, excuse me, of a good death is timeliness, community, acceptance, and what this author says is the paradox of control that plays out between an individual and the natural forces of decay and what has come to be called the healthcare industry. Actually, maybe the last one is not a characteristic but it's 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 part of the story, mm. so there's this there's this this theme of confronting death. Again, I haven't read the original version. Uh, I was just l- looking through the the books of essays that I have on Barry for more information, and that's kind of what I found. I guess he also revised Memory of Old Jack and A Place on Earth. Um, so I wonder when you say that it felt unfinished, I wonder if the 1960 version would have felt more finished. But also less satisfying. Yeah, well, that's a good. <laughs> Once you see that Nathan yeah. Coulter had an affair with Gander's wife. 
Yeah, that almost feels like knowing that this is his first book that he published. I want. I wonder if this is total projection, but wonder if Barry was uh, sort of <laughs> revising it was a process of peeling all of the like New York influence off of his story, mm. you know, or like his the sort of New York literary scene that he was part of and that maybe he felt that he was, he was putting something like that in or had let the story take that turn because of uh, maybe for showing more of like a sacred attitude towards the, the plot or the conflict of it rather than just the, the, the true experience of it. I don't know. Yeah. It's It's pure as you, as you acknowledge, that's like, it's that speculation and Mm -hmm. I can totally see that. Yeah. That's, that's not hard for me to imagine. Yeah, and that, I guess that that logic maybe falls apart a little bit with the fact that he edited *Memory of Old Jack* and *A Place on Earth*. But I guess we can just think that those are for different reasons because those books were later. So, but I think that just that's just what struck me as far as Nathan Coulter goes. Yeah. Yeah. So knowing that, does it undermine this book at all for you? I have to be conscious about not letting that undermine. Knowing that it was edited. Knowing the original version. Uh, no, I, I think in my, in my head, it's, it's, it feels very easy to just trust that the artist put this version in my hands for a reason. And so, yeah, you know, I, I think that's, and it's, you know, a a blessing that he's, he is who he is and he works with the people he does at counterpoint and has the publishers that he's, he's had, because it probably has made it easier for him to have that kind of a control over his books, which I know a lot of authors would probably wish to have, which is not, Mm not always the case. So yeah, it doesn't undermine it for me. I just, I see it as, you know, I want the version in my hand that I trust him enough to know that I should just want the version that he wants to be in my hand. So, yeah. And I think the, here's how I will reconcile it. And so that it's easier for, so that it doesn't have to be so intentional. I think when, when I heard that the book was, uh, edited, I thought, I, I thought of those last 20 pages as like a deleted scene on a DVD. Like it's part of the story, but it was, we decided that you didn't really need to see this. Yeah. No, like this is actually the story that, that Barry wants us to have. Yeah. Yeah. Or this is the, yeah, where the, the story where he believes the, the most meaning or the most, it's the most, the story worth telling is this one. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. What are some things that really, that worked for you in this, in in this book, uh, well, what I already, are some of its strengths? Yeah, I mean, I already talked about like the novella format. I really am mm-hmm. just such a big fan of of that. I like the pacing pacing of it for that for that sake. Um, I like that it was a pretty limited cast of characters uh, for the most part. And the thing that really stuck out to me as the most fascinating was the way that he treated relationships. Uh, and not just like romantic relationships, but just relationships between family members with this book. Um, I, you had mentioned, uh, I, I, th- I think this is a really good insight that this is not an idyllic uh, story of living in the country and in, in Kentucky, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, and I really liked the dissonance between Burley and Grandpa is one something that really stuck out to me. I like that they in some ways I saw them as being very very similar to each other. They're they're kind of cut from the same cloth, but the difference is that grandpa has more self-control and probably a little more of a worry about reputation than Burley does. And so the reason they butt heads so often um, is because they have so much in common 
Uh, it's just that Burley is so much more of a free spirit. And that's, that was really fascinating to me. You know, grandpa can go off and do something like killing the chick, you know, killing the chicken or whatever. And that's that, that scene where he, he like hangs the chicken or whatever. And, uh, he can have these bursts. I think it was a cat, of, wasn't it? Is a that, cat. Didn't cat. he kill the yeah, cat yeah. too? Sorry. Yeah, he kills yeah. the cat. He like hangs mm-hmm. the cat, and it's like he can have those sort of burst, bursts of emotional response to something like Burley can in his own way. Um, that was very fascinating to me. So I, I really liked that. Um, I like. I think this this novel is rich with um, kind of little minor details that just continue to live on in my mind. A a couple that come to mind initially are the character of jig. Um, I really enjoyed one of my, I think maybe my, maybe my favorite line, which is kind of a weird line to pick as my favorite line from a book, but it's one that I thought I think about regularly as a metaphor. As when he's talking about jig's house, who jig is a character. He says is crazy on religion and inside of his house, he has this just like wild system of gears and pulleys and things that run. And the, Mm -hmm. the quote is he says that the whole inside of his house was a machine that couldn't do anything but run. (laughs) Yeah. I, I underline that too. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a sentence that I, I think about often as a metaphor for like times in my life where I feel like I'm the, the situation that I'm in or the, my work situation or this, what we're doing at home. It's like, we're not doing anything but creating a machine that just runs. It doesn't produce yes. anything. It just runs mm-hmm. <laughs> gears spin, but nothing happens, you know? So I really, really love, love that, that line. And, uh, you know, as well, I also love the, the monument, the family monument that the, I guess it was Nathan's great grandmother purchased is something else that sticks out to me as one of those minor details that, that carries weight. Uh, great grandmother was basically swindled by a traveling salesman into buying this just kind of obnoxious phallic monument in the (laughs) port with this big, just like spire, uh, in, in the Port William cemetery. And he says that she, uh, that his, his great grandmother had bought it when she was quote old and childish. And that's a phrase that I also love very much. Yeah. She was old and childish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, cause that, that, that's where we start there at the beginning of the book and that the presence of that, that gravesite kind of looms throughout the novel with grandpa's d- disdain for it and the family's kind of embarrassment of it. And, and also, like you said, it was, uh, you know, he's talking so much about a good death or about dying, that uh, is, it's a very appropriate, literally looming structure over the rest mm-hmm. of the story. Yep. Yep. So, how about how about you? What are some some scenes or passages that are quotes that stuck out to you? Well, I think what was I, I was struck upon rereading it by just how brilliant his characterization is. I want to say, especially early in the book, as we're we're really getting to know these characters. And especially, I would say, with with the father and the grandfather, late, very late in the book, Barry says that um, the father and the grandfather couldn't have respected themselves if they hadn't fought so much. <laughs> and we see that really early in the book. And there are a couple passages I marked down. This is about the father. And about the father, Barry writes, he said that when we finally, I guess it's from the Nathan's perspective, he said that when we finally did get the farm paid for, we could tell everybody to go to hell. That was what he lived for, to own his own farm without having to say please or thank you to a living soul. That says so much about the character, the character of the father. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on page 21, there's this little uh, passage about the grandfather where he's described as, as walking in such a way that um, he poked the cane straight out in front of him as if to get the air and everything out of the way so he could move faster. <laughs> 
He always hurried, even across a room, setting his feet down hard. You could never imagine him turning around and going the other way. When he walked through the house, he made the dishes rattle in the kitchen cabinet, and you half expected to find his tracks sunk into the floor. Hmm. <laughs> in terms of the scenes that stood out to me again, and these are the scenes that, that stuck with me for for years since I read it the first time, honestly, like the scenes that stood out to me were the ones that involved, frankly, like cruelty to animals. They're mm-hmm. just, they're so shocking and sometimes told in such a matter of fact way that it's, <laughs> it's difficult. So there's a yeah. scene in which they stick like a, like a dynamite cap up the, the bunghole <laughs> of a crow. <laughs> I'm sorry, I feel bad even laughing yeah, about yeah, it because yeah, yeah. it's so cruel and, and yet it's kind of funny too. I, I'm just yeah. a bad person. Oh no, um, I'm, I'm with you. That that scene, I remember like, uh, I was reading at the time when I was reading it. It was in school, and the students were working on something, and you know, rare moment where I was like, I'm going to sit here and show them what an adult reading looks like. And I pulled out the book, <laughs> and uh, I started reading, and sure enough, it was that scene that I read that day. And so I burst out laughing in front of the class and had to explain it to them, which was, you know, its own kind of awkward moment. But yeah, yeah. So there's that one. There was the one where when the grandfather hung the cat in his rage. They had just had these volcanic temperaments, the the father and the and the grandfather. Um, and then the other one is when Burley Burley gets the ducks and takes them to the fair and like sets up his own little uh, uh, you know attraction or game, I should say, a game yeah. at the at the fair. Then involves like trying to get people to ring, uh, throw throw a ring around the neck of of the ducks. And he uses it to, to swindle a lot of people out of the money because the ducks always, always duck. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, what else is a duck going to do? But then as the ducks get tired and Burley gets cranky and I think he's had some something to drink at this point. I can't totally remember. Yeah, it's like right after but, he, run, like he runs he, off and kind of disappears for a while to get a drink and doesn't come back. Yeah. And Nathan and Tom are running, this, running the booth. Yeah. And he he shoots the ducks. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyway, it's just it, they're cruel mm-hmm. scenes in a lot of ways, and it, it, for that they've they've just stuck in my memory for for years. Yeah, yeah. That's um, it's it's not a this one doesn't it's not quite as cruel, but the scene with the fish, uh, this, there's this kind of like parable-ish story of when Nathan and Burley catch that gigantic fish. This just like huge mm-hmm. fish. I guess that also leads to when they were throwing the, another cruel scene of animals is when they're throwing the dynamite into the water. Remember that, that, yep. that scene where they throw it in and like kill all the fish in the water mm-hmm. and the, the game wardens like, Oh, thanks. <laughs> like scoops out the fish and takes them with them, you know, or whatever. Like, um, but there's that yeah, the scene where they catch this gigantic fish and then it turns into this. I don't know. It's like it feels like a little parable or something where they they take it in town. They should they start to show it off and they have these big plans for it to become this big fish roast and they're gonna have friends. They're gonna fry this fish and they're gonna it's gonna be the best thing they've ever had. And then it it's almost gets to the point where the fish has has taken on a whole, a whole life of its own. And Burley kind of teaches Nathan a lesson through that by just kind of saying like, well, it's not ours anymore. It's everybody's and, and, mm-hmm. and runs off. So that, that, that scene, that scene stuck out to me as well. Um, yeah. Any other scenes stick out for you while we're, on, while we're on that? I think the last, the last one is just the, the lightning storm, 
that leads to the the burning of the barn. So mm-hmm. uh, yes. there's this this scene where Nathan is basically going to stay with he, he he has kind of after his mother dies he sort of has free range to just do whatever he wants to a certain extent and he runs off and goes to hang out with Burley and Big Ellis and I think Jig comes over and they're all drinking moonshine or whatever it is they're they're drinking and Nathan's sort of a fly on the wall for this whole experience this big storm starts and there's a uh, oh it's kind of a, a very emotional scene I'm gonna I'm pulling up the the quote here um, in my book. Um, as the lightning got worse Jig stood in the middle of the floor and watched it as wild eyed as a ghost Burley he said he could strike us down with one of them I reckon so Uncle Burley said he could strike you down just like a rabbit he can shoot him like a rifle Uncle Burley said it lightened again the thunder clapped down jarring the house oh Jig said he fell on the floor with his hands over his face bullseye Uncle Burley said the thunder bumbled away over the top of the hill. Burley, that one struck something, Big Alice said. It must have, Uncle Burley said. We went to the windows and looked out, but it was raining too hard to see anything. Jig was still on the floor, hiding his face. Get up, Jig, Uncle Burley said. You're not dead. <laughs> he, ain't, he ain't even wounded, said Big Alice. But, um, so there's that, that, I love that little interaction. Uh, there's so much, to, so much to feel and hear there. And then, of course, we find out that that, that lightning bolt that struck something had struck the barn on the Coulter's land. And so there's a very powerful scene of them trying, with the help of the town, sort of, trying to put out this fire. At the same time, the town kind of coming to watch it like it's a movie at a drive-in or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and you just see the, the father and I think the grandfather, too, just working and working mm-hmm. long after it's clear that the, the barn is, is gone. Nothing can't do. be saved, right? Yeah, but there's nothing else to do except for just to keep keep working. Yeah. yeah. Maybe this is not going to be good good podcast material, and maybe I should I should cut it out. <laughs> um, we'll see. But this that scene reminded me of something from another story, and I'm wondering if you can. Uh, it's not, but I don't think it's another Barry story. And I'm wondering if you know. And it's I feel like there's another. It's it's a barn burns down. And are you, after are you thinking of barn burning by William Faulkner, is it where? So I the, the memory I have is that like people are like bring them bread, and the ashes are mixed in with yeah. the bread, and yeah. it's like a kind of communion. Is that Faulkner? Yeah, it's uh. So I'm reading this. This is off of Wikipedia, the synopsis, but. Uh, barn burning set in about 1895 opens in a country drugstore, which is doubling as a justice of the peace court. A hungry boy named Sardi craves the stew and bread in the store. He's afraid his father Abner Snopes is in court, and so uh, it's it's a longer one. But yeah, so they're they're being his dad's being accused um, accused of being a barn burner, and then mm. you kind of follow that through. So yeah, I think that's that might be the story you're thinking of. But it's been a really long time since I've read that story. Well, the two had become conflated in my mind, and so I kept waiting for somebody to bring the bread, <laughs> and it didn't happen. And so I thought, oh, it must must be something else. As as we brought up before on this podcast, and and even a little bit earlier, Barry's been accused of romanticizing rural life in his Port William fiction, um, and it's a creek. It's a critique that I understand, even though I don't totally agree with it. But as we've kind of gotten into, the life of the Coulters described here is very far from idyllic. 
Uh, there are certain parts of it that I think would have been wonderful to grow up, kind of having so much room to walk and explore. But it was a hard life, too. And I think that's especially, we especially see that with with the violence in, in the book. We've, we've talked about the cruelty to animals, but there's cruelty among humans, too. Like, as I, as I said before, the father and the grandfather have tempers. There are, you know, smashed windows and fights and emotional cruelty and, and all of these things. And, and the life that they live is, is a ton of hard work. Barry has said that no creature lives except at the expense of other creatures. And you see just how much of their like blood, sweat, and tears they give to uh, making a life on this on this this on these farms um anyway so i I, i'm curious you know what the you know how nathan coulter plays into that critique of that he's nostalgizing or (laughs) romanticizing rural life uh, because it doesn't really seem to 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 fit that no it's it's emotional cruelty as well between a lot of these these characters um and i think you mentioned the father and the grandfather but also the father and tom the son i mean there's that mm-hmm. same it kind of it trickles down to him as well where it, the the book concludes with this kind of you, like you said you stated well earlier that he tom ends up leaving because his pride is hurt by his dad by his dad his dad just pushes him and pushes him and pushes him mm-hmm. to be better and he's like you got to go faster than that to keep up with me you got to be better when they're 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 processing the uh, the crops and it becomes this just really big kind of looming competition between them that Nathan and Burley, who seem to be more similar to one another, uh, seem immune to that kind of way of thinking where both of them are more of like the stoic. I'm doing what I can do and there's nothing I can do about that. And if he's going faster than me, I know that I'm trying my hardest, you know? And so you've got like the stoics and then the sort of like uh, Tom and dad who are really pushing each other. So I think that's that definitely looms big for me. There's there's no there really is no relationship besides maybe Burley and Nathan in the whole book that seems idyllic. Yeah. Right? I mean yeah. Na- Nathan and Tom have their issues eventually especially once Tom kind of gets a girlfriend and gets sort of moving into adolescence or you know moving into his teen years or whatever. And so definitely between their Nathan and Tom's father not a good father by you know as far as like involvement in their lives i mean he he's been through a lot and when his wife dies he just just basically completely cuts himself off from him unless he needs labor mm-hmm. is how it mm-hmm. is how they they feel uh grandparents are busy in their own way so yeah really the the as far as being idyllic the only the only taste of that we get is just kind of the shenanigans of of burley and and nathan but that's not really the real life of this world. So that's just kind of an extra little flavor on top. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Well, anything else we should talk about that we haven't brought up yet? You know, I mean, I think this is, I, I, I keep thinking, I keep finding myself going back in my head to your comment about how you wonder if you would have read this first, if this would have been, if you would have kept reading into these stories. And that's really interesting to me because I'm thinking of people who are reading along with us or who might be reading along and starting here and this maybe being the first novel that they, they touch on. And while I think we've, we've touched on a lot of really kind of charming scenes or scenes that are funny, right. Uh, or scenes that are, 
that are moving to us or lines that really mean something to us. I think it might be interesting just to finish by talking about what is it that some of the later novels of Barry have that this one doesn't, hmm. which is a big yeah. a big question to pose kind of on the fly, but it just kind of gets crossing my mind because I think you you really hit something there. So um, d- does anything come to mind to you initially like that that maybe Jaber Crow or Place on Earth has that this one this one lacks? Yeah, it, yeah, something does come to mind. The thing is, I know that I've mentioned this before, and so it is, I am repeating myself, which I have a tendency to do. I'll just say that one of the, so, so when I hear folks critique Barry for romanticizing rural life, my, he doesn't need me to offer a rebuttal, but I, I give one anyway. Because my understanding is that one of the things he wanted to do was he wanted to create a town in which more people than normal recognize that they are part a part of this membership um and so his a lot of his fiction does show the you know the 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 beauty of close-knit community Mm -hmm. and also the, the hard things too the hard things too um for sure i that is what i missed from this book is you don't you don't see much of the beauty of it, and that's what we get in a lot of his in his short stories and in a lot of his other novels. Hmm. Um, that's how I would that's how I would describe it. What about you though? Yeah, I think um, there's something about I you know, I think of you know Jaber Crow kind of comes to my mind as a is a book that kind of a gold standard novel of his or Hannah Coulter comes to mind. And I think maybe the one thing that's, that could be lacking, but is not in my, my opinion, isn't really a fault of the book is just that this is the only book that I can think of that's told from a, yeah, it's it's the only book that's told from a child's perspective. Right. And so one thing you don't get from this book that you get from other books like Jaber Crow and a place on earth, which is just kind of a third person, narrator it's not you know uh, but well, whether it's andy catlett that kind, of, that kind of older character but is that you're you don't get the musings that you get in the later books right you don't get jaber crow sitting alone in his barber chair kind of thinking through things and thinking back on memories and and really wrestling with those things and and you don't you don't feel the slowness of life for old jack Right, you don't feel those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. you experience this book much like a child experiences the world, which is like you look back and you've got like a handful of memories that stick out to yourself, right? But some of these later ones, you're you're in it for a very wonderful long haul. When Hannah Coulter walks you through the the length of a of a story and kind of takes time to stop and look back on things and really process them out loud, that's something we can't necessarily expect a thirteen year old narrator. <laughs> to do or even if he's writing it as an older person obviously but like uh i think that's one thing that it makes it different that makes it stand out as kind of a different beast than the others i don't know if you if i'm if i'm if, if i'm misremembering please point it out but if, is there another novel that that has the the well there's perspective Andy early travels yeah but yeah i think even in that one it's been a few years since i've read that one but i think even in that one he's remember he's looking back and he's also so it's about his his early childhood, but he's an adult looking back. And he's also the writerly figure of this, and so we can sort yeah. of trust that his his tone is going to be a little different than than this one. So it's interesting. I always think about this book being one of the only ones that's not like an Andy Catlett 
telling the story kind of uh, narrative. But mm-hmm. I think that's. I and think we'll that's see. It. We'll see Nathan Coulter again and again throughout the Port William fiction, but he will be a big part of Hannah Coulter mm-hmm. uh, because uh, Nathan Coulter is Hannah Coulter's husband. Yeah. Um, and Hannah Coulter is usually the book that I recommend, like folks who are just coming into Port William membership fresh, even though Jaber Coulter is my favorite of all the Port William books and my second favorite book of all time. Um, I usually suggest Hannah Coulter as sort of the entry point because to me, at least it seems the most accessible. I also love that it has a female narrator. Mm-hmm. This is a very male book. Nathan Coulter is, mm-hmm. um, Maybe explain some of the violence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's for, that's yeah. For sure. Well, anything else? I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, we're going to do something fun for uh, and kind of break our own rules because for our next book, we are, are not going to go in chronological order. Um, we're actually going to skip ahead 47 years. <laughs> Uh, we are we were scheduled to do a continuous harmony, which is a collection of essays from 1970. But instead, we're actually going to skip ahead to 2017, and we are going to do Barry's most recent essay collection called "The Art of Loading Brush." And so that is going to be great to hear his to to get Barry's voice and Barry's commentary on the times that we live in today. So that's going to be very, very cool. Yeah. This is something we had, we had discussed amongst the, the three of us that we thought would just be, would be a, a welcome change. And maybe it just made sense to us that, um, Wendell Berry is a writer who definitely speaks to his time when, when he's writing, you know, he's, he's aware of what's going on around him. And, and it seems a shame that we wouldn't be covering the art of loading brush or his, his recent writings until six years from now, or whenever we actually get to that just seems like a waste to be like, Hey, you remember that Trump guy? Well, he had something to say. (laughs) So, um, so it just seemed like a good thing to do is within a season, we're going to, we're going to continue doing the, the progression that we've done overall, but we want to leave ourselves room to occasionally bring in more recent works uh, so that they're not, so we don't get to lose the the joy of talking to them in the context in which they were written. Yep, absolutely. Well, we're excited to be back at it. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Um, You can connect with us online at membershippod.com, and that's where you can see what books we'll be talking about next. You can find the older episodes, and you can sign up for email updates if you would like. The book we talked about today was Nathan Coulter. It was first published in 1960. We used the text that was copyrighted in 2008 by Counterpoint Press. Our next book, as we just mentioned, is The Art of Loading Brush, Barry's 2017 essay collection. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Membership Pod. The membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. You can find more great podcasts at rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.